Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 85, The Consciousness Laboratory. Join us this week as we speak with Dr. Peter Grossenbacher, director of the Consciousness Laboratory at Naropa University, about his empirical research on meditation and contemplative spirituality. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks listeners. I know that you think that we cannot get any geekier, but today we are. We're going to put the geek right into Buddhist Geeks today. So we have a special guest that Vince is going to let us in on. This is a fellow that I met in my tenure at Naropa. He was one of my favorite teachers. I took a class called Perception with him. And uh, we're really glad to have Dr. Peter Grossenbacher here with us. So thank you, Peter. Glad to be here. Yeah. And just a little bit about Peter to give some, set some context for this conversation. He is the director of the Consciousness Lab at Naropa University, where he's been a professor for the past nine years, teaching primarily in the contemplative psych department which as I understand, it's a pretty unique department for a university, contemplative psychology. There's no way around that. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and also he's a longtime Shambhala practitioner. So he's got a dual background in neuroscience and psychology and at the graduate level as well as a practitioner background. So he's one of those scholar practitioners that we like to talk to. So I think he'll have a, a lot to offer. And he also conducts quite a bit of research with consciousness, meditation, things like that, which we'll be talking about here together today. So we're really glad to have him with us. So to kick it off, being the director of the Consciousness Lab, what kind of research are you conducting there? I direct a program of research on meditation and contemplative spirituality. I used to just say I direct a program of research on meditation, but after a couple of years of empirical study, we realized that people do not simply meditate in a vacuum, meditation plays very important roles in people's lives. So in order to honor that and address that as best we can, we expanded the scope of our program of research in addressing contemplative spirituality, whatever that is, in an effort to more fully learn about and work with how meditation impacts people's lives. Mm. So in our early study, we used questionnaires and interviews to find out what people do when they meditate, in particular the details of the techniques they use, mm -hmm. and what effects they feel meditation has had in their lives. I could boil down those findings into two areas. One is an increase in awareness. The other is a change in understanding of reality. Mm. So those have developed now into two foci of our program of research, one, engagement with awareness, the other being worldview, a person's conception of the world they live in, mm. including values, attitudes, and beliefs mm. about life, reality, their own mind and experience. And the third focus in our program of research is the teaching and learning of meditation. Mm. 
So we're currently working in these three areas, awareness, worldview, and teaching and learning, primarily through interview studies, but also through what you might call rating scales or other psychological methods for quantifying and qualifying aspects of people's personal lived experience. Psychology as a field has been conducting such research for decades, mostly on topics having nothing to do with meditation. Mm. So we have a lot of shoulders to stand on these days in terms of the methods that others have used and applying those methods and developing similar methods for use in the study of meditation. That's interesting. So one quick question. When you said that there are two distinct areas, one of an increase in awareness and then other in a shift of beliefs, values, worldview, that's an interesting distinction. And I often hear them somewhat conflated in in spiritual circles where there's a sense of if you increase your awareness, that automatically means that your values are changing or that your worldview is becoming more vast. Do you find that there is a correlation between those or that they are somewhat distinct areas? I mean, is that something your research has actually looked to answer? Right. By treating them separately and developing separate measures of each, we're able to empirically address the question to determine uh, the degree to which they're positively correlated across people to see whether broader, more inclusive, less judgmental perspectives go along with deeper, wider, more extended, more vast awareness. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if in the next year or two we find indeed there are such positive correlations, which then will leave open the question as to causality. Mm-hmm. Does something else cause such changes in both awareness and worldview, or does one of the two facilitate the other? My guess at this early juncture is that there interdependent, and that wider view facilitates wider awareness and vice versa, Mm. but that there can be fluctuations, perhaps in each, that don't necessarily impact or drive the other one. So I don't think it's a strict governing relation between the two, but more of an enabling, fostering, facilitating kind of relationship. Gotcha. And just to clarify, when you say uh, broader awareness, do you mean of sensory awareness? Well, not limited to that. Mm. Uh, I like to use the phrase engagement with awareness because that's ambiguous uh, with regard to at least two interpretations. One being that what it is that your system, your being, is engaging with is something that might be called awareness or A slightly different way of interpreting the phrase engagement with awareness is that the manner in which you engage any moment of your life is in a manner with awareness. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a subtle distinction there that's been fruitful for me to contemplate. Mm, Interesting. So one thing that science and Buddhism have in common is specificity. So in my program at least parts of the training. So in the Shedra training, everything is defined precisely. And uh, so awareness is defined precisely in Tibetan Buddhism. So I'm wondering if you have like a precise definition, you know, just to 
throw that out there of what awareness means. Because that's what I thought of immediately when you said awareness. I'm, I wanted to know what specifically do you mean when you say that? And it's not a, it's not an issue of like having different definitions of using the defendiendum, but just to know what we're all talking about here. Yeah. I look forward to the day when I feel comfortable enough with this approach to have an empirically based definition mm. of awareness mm. or of meditation for mm. that matter. And as yet, we're not at that point. Mm. Now, that doesn't get us off any hook. In fact, it places us squarely on the hook of not knowing mm -hmm. what we're doing and what we're studying. Right. So there's a lot of work ahead of us. Awareness is something that is available in direct experience. And the exact role awareness plays in that experience is not something that I have clearly pinned down within a conceptual framework. If awareness mm -hmm. is a butterfly, I've not stuck a pin through it and flattened the wings. Mm -hmm. Now, there are both advantages and disadvantages to this state of our research. I hearken again to this phrase, engagement with awareness, as an active, living subjectivity that involves awareness though the exact configuration of one's own mind with respect to awareness is unconstrained. Mm. And I would say that, generally speaking, our approach to conducting scientific research emphasizes the empirical, emphasizes observation yeah. with precision, mm -hmm. and then that allows for testing the reliability of such observations, and so on. And if anything, I'm a very reluctant theorist. So even so far as defining something mm -hmm. is a proto-theory. It's mm -hmm. the conceptual basis for then theorizing relationship between two or more constructs. Mm -hmm. So I do go down that road slowly mm -hmm. after years of formal empirical science interesting yeah that makes sense i appreciate the conscious ambiguity about that to approach the issue i wonder if you could explain or just give a description of what the experience is like as a participant in some of this research because i think that might give a different window in for listeners as to what you're doing yeah thank you participants have in the past completed questionnaires uh the total battery or set of questionnaires in the Naropa University meditation questionnaire battery takes several hours to complete, mm. uh, which is a complete history of one's training and practice in meditation mm. and description of experiences during meditation and effects of meditation and influences on meditation. Mm. And we have used those data as the basis for configuring our current program of research that focuses on teaching and learning and transformation in awareness and of personal worldview. Mm. So these days, participants are interviewed by myself or one of my colleagues, and there's audio recording of their words, which we then use as verbal data. Very rich verbal descriptions are then subjected to thematic and other forms of content analysis 
Again, uh, these are methods that we have not had to completely pioneer from scratch, but we're using qualitative methods that have been developed by others in recent decades so that we can formally, reliably glean some of the important meaning from the statements these people make in response mm. to our questions. Mm -hmm. So we have developed the contemplative worldview interview in which we find out about a person's values, attitudes, and beliefs mm -hmm. about the world and their own mind and experience. That is the reflective turn of inward in which a person gains greater awareness and perhaps understanding of how their mind works that is relatively common among many contemplative traditions. And so worldview assessments created by other researchers have not foregrounded or even included that aspect. Mm. That's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking as you're describing this of the class I took with you and of one particular component of that, which was keeping a sensory journal where I describe certain things and, uh, that are happening in my mm. sensory awareness with as much accuracy as possible or sometimes in a more poetic way. But there was an attempt at, at really describing what I was experiencing. And it sounds like that's part of what you're doing in these interviews, these contemplative worldview interviews. Yeah, I guess that's why we call it the consciousness lab, is we're very interested in each individual person's lived experience. Mm. And one of the best ways to explore that experience is to talk about it, ask questions about it, interrogate it. And so we use interview technique with regard to personal worldview. And that class you were talking about, Perception, is a course in which Naropa students, mostly untrained in psychology, use their own lived experience as a laboratory in which to make observations, both in formal laboratory exercises and more freely throughout their day. In each moment, there is visual experience, auditory experience, bodily experience, and so on, whether it's in the form of perception or imagery or memory or dream or hallucination. All of that sensory experience is part of what's going on in awareness. Not that awareness need be limited only to sensory awareness. Mm -hmm. Every thought, notion, idea, concept, feeling, emotion, atmospheric sense, expansiveness, feeling of claustrophobia, pressure, whatever it is, all of that is occurring within a field of awareness. Mm -hmm. So, again, whether we want to think primarily of the content of awareness, that's the level at which most of us operate most of the time, but I'm not convinced that awareness or our concept of awareness need be limited merely to content of consciousness, but rather it's helpful to think both in terms of foreground and background, mm -hmm. more of a mandala or field or entirety of awareness. Mm. And 
being willing to invite some ambiguity about the ultimate scope or nature of that awareness feels most accurate to our scientific understanding. Nice. So one thing I'm wondering about, I'm, I'm thinking back to a book that I, I glanced at uh, by B. Allen Wallace called the, the Taboo of Subjectivity. And you're mentioning in your research that a lot of it's qualitative, it's based on people's lived subjective experiences. And yet there is this trend in the scientific community toward or away from subjectivity and towards toward objectivity. Like if it, if it can't be measured with the visible eye or some magnification of it, that it's, that it's not real. So I'm wondering, do you, do you ever find that with your colleagues in that field or, or that you ever have to, to really deal with this, mis- I don't know if it's a misconception or if it's just a bias or what, but do you, do you have to deal with that at all in the research that you do? Sure. I'd say the primary dimension of individual differences that comes into play here has to do with narrow-mindedness and open-mindedness. So narrow-mindedness is something that's very easy for any of us to fall into or operate from, where we limit the assumed scope of possibility to our preconceptions. Whatever our idea of the possible is, that's what we're already willing to limit the conversation to. Mm -hmm. And I find that when I or when any of us do that, it ends up compromising the richness of the conversation. So, of course, I've encountered, it's much easier for me to see narrow-mindedness in other people. I don't know how easy it is to really see my own Mm narrow-mindedness. Perhaps I don't have any. (laughs) That's a joke. (laughs) Um, So, when, often I'm asked this question by, Naropa students. So if you're just using words to find out about people's experience, how can you be sure that's what's really going on? Mm. And so this is a question of validation. To what extent are these methods valid? They're certainly widely employed in human-related activities, not just psychology, but medicine and all over the place. In the last decade, it's now become standard in hospitals in the United States. When people come in and report pain, the question is, okay, on a scale from 0 to 10, what level of pain are you currently experiencing? Now, if what's a 5 for me might be a a 7.5 for you, what good are such scales? Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out such scales were innovated by psychologists many decades ago and have been used to find out that individuals can be reliable in their quantification of any dimension of their experience. So that if someone is at a level 5 and then it's reduced to a level 2, that really means something. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, Mm -hmm. comparing uh, just absolute measures... Uh, across individuals may not be the most sensible way to treat those data, but there are useful ways to get valid information out of such simple numeric ratings of pain. Mm -hmm. Well, we do the same thing 
uh, with aspects of awareness. We use and are developing now rating scales to find out the degree to which an individual feels present in the current moment. And, of course, it's not easy to go in there and use some alternative gold standard as a validating perspective and say, okay, well, you know, they're 90% right, or, oh, they're a little bit off, or, wow, that person's really off in their rating. Uh, But that's okay. That doesn't stop the progress that's possible in a program of research that is careful about its methodology. Mm. Interesting. That's great. So just one last question on the Consciousness Lab. Wondering, what is your hope for the empirical research that you do? What are you hoping, not to see from it, but what are you hoping, what kind of impact are you hoping that it has? Our lab motto is, may we be of benefit to others through this research. And indeed, it's starting to feel like we're getting a clearer understanding of how contemplative development unfolds. Mm. That foregrounding these two complementary aspects of being, engagement with awareness on the one hand, personal worldview on the other, we're able to learn about both the juice of being alive and aware, as well as the conceptual grip with which the mind holds its experience. Mm -hmm. And this seems helpful to be able to learn about and then communicate with others that these things seem to be going on as a person progresses along a path of meditation and that there are spheres of education that can make use of these natural ways that humans progress in order to contribute to contemplative education that addresses the whole person, including both head and heart, in a way that need not fall under one or another religious ideology, Mm -hmm. but nonetheless leverages the mind's contemplative capacities for becoming a more fully educated person. Mm. Interesting. It sounds kind of like you're looking to create an empirical map of contemplative territory that's based on empirical research, not simply on like a, a particular religious framework. It's kind of non-secular, I guess, in that way. Yeah, I have my own exposure to a number of different spiritual traditions that I have found very helpful. Right. But some of the training I've had, I'm a third-generation scientist in my family. Yeah. Uh, Some of the training I've had in science actually is mirrored by my contemplative training. Mm -hmm. There are two fundamental principles in particular that I see shared between scientific and contemplative wisdom traditions. One being open-mindedness, that's usually more noticed in spiritual traditions, and unless you're on the inside conducting the creative work of science, open-mindedness isn't always the first thing people think of when they think of science Mm -hmm. today, but it's really there. Without it, uh, there would be no discovery. The other component I see shared 
between contemplative and scientific training has to do with not fully buying in to an idea. Skepticism is something that, again, may be more readily attributed by most people to science, but the idea of not taking even your own thought 100% as given is very much part of contemplative traditions. So this combination, this very powerful combination of open-mindedness on the one hand and skepticism about everything on the other hand is what makes, I think, both science and contemplative spirituality on a good day safe, that they carry with them in their own system an antidote to the problems that we come up with as human beings in thinking we have understood and mastered either a scientific knowledge of the universe or a spiritual mastery, that if we get caught up in the thinking that we've got it figured out, there's the antidote of skepticism mm. together with the not yet fully explored horizon of possibility that's intrinsic to open-mindedness. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.